0: This morning, we are starting a new sermon series, Redeeming Sex and Sexuality. I will be honest, when I typed those words, I paused, as I did, because sex and sexuality are subjects that have the potential for all sorts of conflict and misunderstanding. They are fraught with landmines, these topics, culturally, and even in the world of Evangelicalism, there are these divisive issues that create challenges within the church, certainly within the culture, certainly moment by moment on social media, and sex is one of those. It's one of those issues that's high on that list. Sex is also powerful. We have all had some negative experience, dare I say, experiences, uh, in some respect related to sinful desires sinful behavior, sinful um, exploitation at the hands of others, victimization at the hands of others. Uh, So any talk of sex can produce feelings immediately of shame or revulsion or simply embarrassment. So with that in mind, you may think, why? Why do the elders of my church think this is a good idea to do a sermon series on the topic of Sex. Well, that's a good question. I'm going to try to answer it this morning. This will not be an exhaustive answer, but we'll give you three answers this morning to why we think this is relevant for a sermon series. And those three, you've hopefully got a copy of the notes, but the sacredness of sex and sexuality, deviations from God's good design, and then the third, because our bodies matter. I'd like you to start with me by turning to Ezekiel chapter 16, and as you're turning there, I want to give full credit for this first point on the sacredness of sex and sexuality to John Piper. Uh, If I could encourage you just early on in this series, for a book to read in addition, if you'd like to look at something else in addition to what we talk about on Sunday mornings, it's mentioned in the sermon notes. It's his 2005 book, Sex and the Supremacy of God. Is it Sex and Supremacy of God or Sex and the Supremacy of Christ? I forget now on my title, Christ. Yeah. Um, you can go to desiringgod.org and, and download most of his books. This one included for free if you want to just do a download version. Um, but I would highly encourage you to, uh, to read that. Ezekiel's a prophet. He's a prophet to the nation of Judah, to the Jewish people. He begins his ministry in 593 BC. It is at a point in time when he is confronting the Jewish people for pride and for arrogance, for rebellion against God. Uh, They could not continue to persist in these ways without experiencing God's judgment in some way. And so Ezekiel is one of many prophets to warn them of what is coming if they continue down this path. And as Ezekiel begins to speak, it is a time when the Babylonian empire is is well on the rise. They are capturing lands. They are taking over places. They are exploiting peoples as they take them, and they are now threatening the Jewish people. Ironically, in Jerusalem, there is this sort of attitude of nobody can touch us because God has made Jerusalem his place and we're in his city, we're okay. Nothing can happen here. And so we're sort of untouchable. And there's this almost arrogance in Jerusalem that says, this is God's city. So as long as we're here, we're safe. And Ezekiel is speaking to that. And that's why his preaching is so troubling to the Jewish people, because Ezekiel's saying, no, that's not the case. In fact, in chapter 15, he speaks of the people of Jerusalem as having become useless. And in fact, he describes the analogy he gives in chapter 15 as like a dead branch on a vine. It's so useless that it's at the point of just being pruned. It needs to be cut off and it needs to be thrown in the fire. And the people of Jerusalem are not exactly receiving this well. In fact, the final line of chapter 15 is, I will make the land desolate because they have acted Faithfully So when we get to chapter 16, this is God responding to those who are incredulous at this point. What do you mean that we are faithless? How dare you call us they're speaking to Ezekiel, not thinking they're actually speaking back to God, but how dare you describe us as faithless? And so what chapter 16 does is it's, is it's God's answer to that question. It's essentially God saying to Ezekiel, "Go ahead." Tell them. Tell them how they have been faithless. Explain this to them. And so I'm going to pick up in Ezekiel 16, verse 3. One of the things I just want you to see as we read this is just the imagery that God uses to communicate this prophecy. Ezekiel 16, verse 3 says, this is God to Ezekiel. say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Live. I said to you in your blood live, I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. Let me stop there. All right. Before you were at all sidetracked by some of the the imagery, some of the language that, that God uses here, let me make sure that you get the main point. This is a message about God's grace. This is about God saving people. And it is a a statement of how remarkably God saves people, how he rescues them, how he doesn't save them because they have earned his favor or somehow have wooed him on the basis of, of making him love them in some way. This is God showing his mercy and kindness to those who no one else cared for. It even describes there, no one pitied you. You had been cast out. You you were abhorred on the day that you were born. His point is that God chose them for himself, not on the basis of anything that they had done. They had not made themselves lovely to him in some way. Then what follows in verse 8 is the description of a marriage covenant the spreading of the garment over the young woman, the statement of promise uh, to to protect her, the vow to care, the entering into the covenant. All of this is using the language of marriage to describe God's relationship with his people. It's talking about the, the wooing by God, the calling by God, the choosing by God, and bringing into this intimate relationship. We read on and it describes how Israel then becomes this glorious nation, beautiful, reflecting God's splendor. Look at verse 13, if you will. Let me read down through verse 17, Ezekiel 16, down in verse 13. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. His. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you and made for yourself images of men and with them played the whore. All right, let's stop there. Again, the language is powerful. And the descriptions God is using touch us in a way that, that is experiential, not only knowledge in mind, but, but this is powerful language that he's using here. He's, he's describing how he mercifully took Israel as his bride. He adorns her with his glory. And so the fact that she becomes beautiful, that she shows splendor is because she's reflecting the glory of God. It is his work through her that has turned her into this great nation. And then the people turn from God. His description here is that they become faithless. And what he uses is marital unfaithfulness to describe this. Israel commits what he describes as adultery. They act, as verse 30 says, doing the deeds of a a brazen prostitute. Verse 32 says, as an adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. All throughout these descriptions, God is using marital intimacy, sexual relationship to describe theology. He's he's making theological points. He's trying to to help us understand our relationship to him. But why, why use that imagery? I'm going to borrow again from the words of John Piper. God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to him in love and what it means to turn away from him to others. In other words, Ezekiel 16 is so powerful And the imagery is so compelling, almost to the point of of making us just a, a wee bit uncomfortable on a Sunday morning as we read these things, because we understand something about the power of love and sexual intimacy. We understand that the imagery he's using here is sort of like playing with fire in some sense, because we understand the power of this. There are emotions and desires that stir in our own hearts, in the human heart, through the intimate bond of a sexual relationship. There is a depth of exposure of one's self in, in the act of sexual intimacy, vulnerability that even a lost world, even an unbelieving world, can perceive. As much as our culture around us wants to reduce sexual intimacy to recreational hooking up, we know there is so much more to this than some mere biological activity with physical experiences or sensations. We understand that there is a depth to this. We're going to talk about God's design more next week, but the the unique one flesh bond that God created in human experience is like no other. That's why he graciously protected the sexual act within the boundaries of a lifelong covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. But here's the point that I want to make sure that you get as we're we're looking at this. Throughout scripture, God uses our knowledge, our understanding of sexual intimacy, of marital and sexual intimacy to teach us about our covenant relationship with him, his his reach to us, him loving us, the covenant with which he brought to us. He uses a profoundly physical and emotional experience in order to teach us theology. So, what I know and experience about the unique one-flesh bond that I have with my wife, even at the, the, the imperfect level of, of sinful humanity, helps me, this is why Scripture is using this, it, it helps me to better understand what it means to be bound to Christ, to be joined to Christ, and how he loves me in the most intimate of ways with a deep and everlasting and perfect love that's why God takes imagery with which we have familiarity and we understand the power of it and says now understand it on the most perfect level which is my love for you and my joining you to me and making me to be my bride You don't have to be married to understand this. God made us as beings who understand the power of sexual desire. And throughout the scriptures, God uses these pictures of desire and intimacy to help us get a better sense for how deeply he loves us and how we are joined to him. That's why when you get to Ephesians 5... And the picture when he's, he's been teaching about um, work and service to your employer, and then the relationships between children and parents, and then finally the relationships between spouse, between husband and wife, he ties it now to Christ and the church, and he makes the husband and the bride imagery there. And so in Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. There's that same language now in the New Testament of that relationship between Jesus and believers, brothers and sisters here in Christ. Same language will come up in the book of Revelation when he speaks of the bride of Christ, that we ultimately go to this great banquet feast to be with him, this great celebration of our union with Christ. Christian marital intimacy is a powerful testimony to the, the love of Christ for his people. But that analogy also works in just helping us as we ponder what it means to, to love and be loved in a one flesh relationship. We are, we are getting a glimpse of how deeply we are loved by our Savior Jesus Christ. Sexual intimacy in, in marriage is God's good design, it is intended to be pleasing. If you have any doubts about that, read Song of Solomon. We'll no doubt touch on Song of Solomon at at some point during the course of this series. If you have any questions about whether or not God designs pleasure to be part of that intimacy, but that pleasure and intimacy is not an end in and of itself. As believers, we are also being taught by God that his good design of love and sex in marriage is meant to help us know him better. I can point that out from one other place. There's several other places, but let me just, one other, and that's the book of Hosea. Hosea can be a really hard read. Old Testament prophet, the husband is essentially abandoned by a faithless wife. She begins to commit adultery on him, and so God uses the prophet's own marriage and his adulterous wife to illustrate the faithlessness of his people, The people's sin, God describes there as playing the whore, is spelled out in Hosea chapter 1. But what's also plain is that's not the end of the story. God describes Hosea taking Gomer as his wife. She commits this adultery. But then in Hosea chapter 2, and I would encourage you to to read this whole section. I'm just going to take some excerpts from it. But Hosea 2, 14 to 20. This is after the adultery. Hosea 2, 14 through 20. Therefore, behold... I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Verse 16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Verse 18, and I will make for them a covenant on that day. And I will make you lie down in safety and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Again, he's taking this intimacy that we understand, and in this case, in fact, spurned by, by the adultery, and he's coupling it together with the knowledge of himself. You will know me. It is through the, the sweetness of God's covenant mercy toward us. We, we are that faithless people. When, when we look at Hosea... And we see the adulterous wife, Scripture's trying to help us see ourselves in this, as those who have spurned all of his good gifts. And here is this uniquely perfect husband, it is God, who is that that one perfect one, who takes the adulterous woman who betrayed him. And he then, it says, pursues her and, and takes her into covenant relationship and and. Causes her to rest in safety and promises to to forever be her perfect lover. Again, in seeing this, you and I are helped to better grasp, fathom the love of our Savior and how he has rescued us. There is a reason that the world under the power of Satan corrupts God's design for sex. And it is not merely for all of the fallout and consequences that that brings. It's not merely to appeal to the selfishness of man, to, to please self and feel good. Our culture makes sex to be another expression of human selfishness. This is about me and, and what I want and how I feel in all of this. And when we embrace those distorted, unbiblical views of sex and sexuality, we are equally shrinking our own capacity to see and appreciate the whole storyline of the Bible. And that is that the God who by his grace gave us his good gifts and who provided for us and was kind to us, we turn around like the faithless adulterous bride and we take the good things God has given us and we take them to ourselves for our own pleasure and our own good and we do with them as we please and we turn our backs on him. And here out of grace, after we have spit in God's face, is him pursuing to bring us to himself in this covenant relationship. This is all to to just help us understand even better how God in love pursued you to take you to himself as his beloved bride and to love you with an intimate and everlasting love. That is grace. And, And so we need to study what the Bible says about sex because there is a sacredness to sex that is more than simply saying it is God's design. It is, and that's important. But it it goes beyond this. God has given us in sex and sexual desire something tangible, something with unique power to experience so that we might see in these many analogies in Scripture instruction about what it means to know God, to be close to God, to be drawn by God and kept by him. All right, that's the first one. Second, we need to talk about sex and sexuality because of the Endless deviations from God's good design. Sexual sin is all over Scripture. I just though want to have you think with me just for a moment about the book of Genesis, and we won't go and look at all these, I'll encourage you to, to, to read yourself as well. But but God's design in sex in, in, in marital intimacy is given right off the bat in, in Genesis chapter two. When, when he has made creation, from the very start, God's creation is good, but one thing is lacking in Genesis chapter 2. It is not good for the man to be alone. He is lacking in some kind of some companionship. Uh, even if there's, even if a golden retriever is amongst that early group and is as friendly as can be, that doesn't do it. That, that, that's not the same sort of level of companionship at all that God has in mind. And he says, something still is absent here. And it is this suitable helper for, for Adam. And so God takes a rib from Adam and he creates A woman and brings her to Adam, and there is this sense of joy in Adam. And Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One man, one woman joined in this unique one flesh relationship. Scripture gives us that right away in Genesis at the creation of woman to say this is God's design. This is how God has made man and woman. He has differentiated in them. He has made them, and he has now brought them together, one man and one woman in a unique one-flesh relationship. And yet, first book of the Bible, that design is laid out, and, and in Genesis, we see Abraham offering his wife To other men on two different occasions for his own protection. We see his son, Isaac, do the same thing with his wife, Rebecca. We see Lot offer his two daughters to a mob of men outside his home. By the way, that that mob had come to his home because they wanted to sexually abuse two guests that had come into Lot's home who turned out to be angels but who they presumed to be men. There's rape in Genesis 34. There's Sarah's mistreatment of her servant Hagar and offering her to Abraham and his sinful participation in that. Both Leah and Rachel gave servants of theirs to their husband Jacob. Lot's daughters took sexual advantage of their drunken father. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law. And Potiphar's wife sought to seduce Joseph and then falsely accused him. What a mess. And this is Genesis. This is just the beginning of the narrative of God's creation. And it is littered with sexual sin turning lives upside down and people debasing one another in in sinful evil. All deviations from God's design of sexual intimacy between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship. That's Genesis. We can now fast forward thousands of years, and our culture has fully embraced men marrying men, women marrying women, sex outside of marriage as the norm, pornography as an epidemic, a person's feelings about his or her gender identity, overruling their own biological sex, and with each of these comes a very clear declaration that to not believe and embrace such things can only be rooted in a prejudicial failure of some kind rooted in fear. That's the culture's argument that you must not only accept these things and tolerate them, but you must embrace them and say that they are good, which as Christians should draw us right back to God's creation and God saying, and it was all very good according to his design. And yet that's the same cry today. This past week, the Associated Press did a story, and I'm not, I'm not going to argue the merits of the story, but the story was, U.S. restores health protections for gay, transgender people. Largely a, a factual story. Here's what the Biden administration intends to do. Here's what the Trump administration did. Here are the issues at play. Here's how the courts have ruled. Number of quotes from various officials. You can agree or disagree with the whole content of the story. But then you come to about two-thirds of the way through the story, a line from the AP writer that I... I have to assume the writer is stating as fact, that this is just part of the story and all of the facts that make up the story. And here's the quote, in recent years, the understanding of sex has broadened to acknowledge a person's inner sense of being male, female, neither, or a combination. You can hold that opinion, it's free country, you're entitled to that. But I assume the writer believes in presenting that in the story that this is fact. This is now the way it is. And and I think my first question would be, whose understanding? The the culture's new normative view of sex now says that gender identity ultimately lies, not in biology or human design, it rests largely, as as this writer's saying, on a person's inner sense. How I feel about these things. Could be one, the other, neither, or both. We, as, as an elder team here, at Grace Bible Church believe it's important to speak to sex and sexuality because we fundamentally believe that God is the designer and creator and sustainer that we owe our lives to him and he has not been silent about these things. His message is not confusing or vague or evolving. Our task as believers in Jesus Christ is to form a worldview that rests not on our feelings or individual expression, but rests on a foundation that is what it is because this is what the Creator has said. This is His design, because when God says it, that's what makes it authoritative. I would tie this back to the first point and say to you that the truth that my Creator having blessed me with all that he did, and I yet running from him and and needing to be pursued by his grace, and he has pursued me to love me with an everlasting love, should now cause me to humbly say, God, what do you say about such things? I have a responsibility to understand your mind because inevitably my thinking and my actions are flawed by sin. They are flawed by who I am as a human being in a broken world, and we should want to search his word. I want to say this, and I'll say it throughout this series. I want to be clear here when we talk about deviations from God's design. I, I, I grew up in 70s evangelicalism. Yeah, he's that old. And, 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 and in 70s evangelicalism, the only deviations that ever really got pointed out were homosexuality. That was the only one. And, 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 and I don't want you to have the idea that this is all about transgenderism and homosexuality. We are going to talk about these things, but we're going to talk about them right alongside of adultery and lust and pornography and masturbation and fornication, sexual sin, deviation from God's good design infects. All of us. We all struggle at some level and, and, and need to see where we have turned aside and acknowledge that, confess it, and repent. All right. We should talk about these things because of the sacredness of sex and sexuality, because of deviations from God's good design. Third, this is the last one, our bodies matter. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Well, caveat on this one. Some sexual sins clearly involve an evil oppressor and a victim. Rape, sexual abuse, all evil acts perpetrated by individuals who overpower, attack, take advantage of another. We're, we'll talk about that again later in the series, but I, I want to set them aside for, for this, but I want to say that first. There is a, there's a tendency when we talk about sexual sin to rationalize There's a tendency, and it infects all of us, to rationalize sexual sin as victimless or harmless or consenting or private or individualistic or something like that. In Western evangelical Christianity, few categories of sin are as covered in shame and secrecy as as sexual immorality. And so we we tend to slide into these sort of rationalizations because we really don't want to do it. Uh, and, 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 and so it somehow, nobody's been harmed by this or premarital sex is still okay because we're consenting or, or whatever it might be. And so we're trying to, to rationalize. I want to show you the Corinthians rationalization, but also say that in the first century Gentile world, there was not the same sense of shame, this sort of public feeling about sexual immorality. We talked about the Corinthians and their culture back when we studied Acts chapter 15. Remember the Jerusalem council? and they're trying to sort out how do we deal with Gentile Christians and and their observance of Jewish law, and that was dealt with, but now how do we also deal with some of the things that concern Jewish Christians about some of the things that trouble them about Gentile Christians and their behaviors? And so the conclusion in Acts 15, 20 is when we write to the Gentiles, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, and from blood. If you remember, much of when we talked about that in Acts 15, much of those, those categories, the, the reason behind that is these Gentile believers are struggling to break with their past. They have been brought up in a culture where idol worship, idol temple worship, idol feasts, all of this is sort of community stuff. And so the sexual immorality is just part of the old way of living. Going to the temple, carrying on, particularly the men in sexual debauchery, often with prostitutes connected to this, is is a normal way of life for them. And so scripture's trying to to rebut this to help them to see that this is not the way it is any longer. So we get to 1 Corinthians. Paul is having to write about this again, and he's having to say to the believers in Corinth, you are different You don't do this stuff anymore. You now live differently. And so he is rebuking them. Chapter 5, he's rebuking a very public case of sexual sin that's going on right in the midst of the congregation, and they seem to be tolerating it. And so in chapter 6 now, we get midway through, and he helps us get some insight into how the young believers in Corinth are rationalizing their behavior, the the sort of things they're saying to try to say, this is no big deal. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful to me, in the ESV that's in quotes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Again, in quotes, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both and the other. Let me stop there. The assumption and ESV, when it puts that in quotes, is, is making sort of an interpretive um, leap here that, that's probably accurate, is that Paul is quoting Corinthian slogans. He's quoting back their responses. This is the things they say to justify their behavior. Here's where the rationalizations are, and he's going to rebut them, but he's essentially saying, I know, I know you say this. I know you believe. And, and, and what he's essentially saying is there's men in the congregation in Corinth professing to be Christians who are still practicing sexual sin with prostitutes, and they're doing so by two kinds of rationalization. One dealing with their freedom, the all things are lawful part, and the other dealing with the body. When he talks about the food for the stomach, God will destroy both. The body's the one I want to get to, but let me just briefly mention on the, the, the freedom rationalization. It's, it's a variation of the very same thing Paul speaks to in Romans chapter six when he's writing to Christians who say, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is full of grace. It's okay for me to do what I want, even if it's sin, because Jesus will show me grace. And here in Corinth, when he rebuts that freedom rationalization, he knows what they're essentially saying is, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is full of grace. I also know that Jesus came and he fulfilled all of the requirements of the Jewish law, and I'm not under that, and so therefore I have freedom to do as I please. And Paul's response to that is no Freedom is not the ultimate rule in your life. The question, the only question is not, am I allowed to do this? The question is, how does this serve others? How does this provide benefit? How how is this good in some way for myself and for those around me? But it's the slogan in verse 13 that's really telling. He talks about food for the stomach and how God will destroy both. He's talking about food, but we know from the context that his, his topic is immorality. That's what he's gonna go on and, and speak about. The idea of the, of the slogan that they're quoting is: we all have bodily functions, like eating and sex. That's essentially how they've they've sort of categorized sex. These are just things the body needs and the body does, and their argument is essentially: and who cares? Because Paul, in the end, God destroys it all. The the, the body doesn't matter because ultimately we will die and the body will return to the ground as dust and the spirit will be absent from the body and with Christ. So in other words, what they're arguing when it comes to this sexual immorality is all bodily functions are essentially in the same category and are largely irrelevant to the higher spiritual being that we are that there's a there's an inner man body doesn't matter inner man is everything this is not unique greek teaching philosophies religious philosophies of this era frequently relied on dualism the idea that the the body is bad the mind or the spirit is good the body is flawed but the inner man that that's really where it's all at the real me exists That's the ultimate reality. And so who cares what I do with my body? Who cares if I go to the temple and have sex with a prostitute? Because that's just in my body. That's that's the rationalization. And you see God respond to it then, verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. We'll we'll revisit some of this in later sermons, but but let, let me just cut to the chase. His point is God made you and I in bodily form. Genesis 1, male and female, he created them. God made man and woman, and he differentiated between them in several ways, not the least of which is in bodily form. And when all of creation was completed, God declared it all very good, including humanity in bodies. He said it was good when the Son of God Came to earth, he took on flesh. When he suffered and died, it was in a body like ours, a body that needed food and sleep. When he was resurrected, he was seen in bodily form. It was something, there were things different about that resurrected body in his ability to be places and show up in rooms, but it was still in a body that he could say to the disciples See here, touch the wounds, put your hands here. When God saved you, he saved the whole person, body and soul. So that your body matters look at verse 19 do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have from god you are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify god in your body this is profound becoming a christian does not as the corinthians wrongly postulated does not suddenly raise me to a higher sort of spiritual plane where my mind and spirit are up here and my body is still down here and can do as it pleases My body is now a dwelling place of the living God. His spirit calls this a temple. It is a place in which Jesus Christ communes with me. And so the pinnacle of sexual activity, which depicts the wife and the husband as becoming one flesh, is not only sacred for how it helps us to know God more intimately. And not only because of God's design and, and, and important because of our, our deviating, deviating from that design, but how we think about sex is vitally important because God made us in bodies. Because he, he has described those bodies as good and now for believers as vessels of his spirit, as temples of his spirit, with which our highest... End and purpose is to glorify him. What we do with our bodies then is not first and foremost about pleasure or feelings. As believers, your body belongs to Christ. He he bought you, it says, with a price. Jesus died on the cross to save sinners, to take our sins on himself and to stand in our place and to suffer the wrath of God for our sins. And now we belong to him. And therefore, what we do with our whole being should honor him. We desperately need to think clearly about sex and sexuality, chiefly for the glory of Christ. God has made these bodies, and he will raise these bodies one day. We will be in glorified, resurrected bodies, and we are to use them to give honor back to him. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then God's word calls you to Honor him. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. I would just urge you as we we finish, just think back to that loving, merciful, gracious God pursuing the faithless, adulterous wife so that he might spread his garment out over her nakedness, take her to himself, cause her to lie in safety and enter into covenant so that he might present her faultless before the throne. Brothers and sisters, that is our testimony. And in a culture that is simmering with sex and sexuality and wrong views on these things, you and I have an opportunity to glorify God by being different with our bodies. There is hope in Christ and his gospel for those who are broken, for those who have been broken by every sort of sin, sexual as well. There's a God who loves his people with a deep passion and his grace is rich he pursues you and calls you to himself if you will trust in him let's pray lord jesus we have in thinking on these things this morning just glimpsed again albeit imperfectly the greatness of your love for us we we see in these biblical pictures the, the your word speaking to us and saying this is is where where we are apart from Christ, running faithlessly, adulterously, taking the good gifts of the creator, spoiling them for our own benefit, doing as we please for our own pleasure. And here's this glorious picture of a Savior who in mercy Comes to the one who is lost, naked, maybe even too foolish to be ashamed at that point. And yet coming to pour out your grace and your love on us. Lord Jesus, it is the depth of that love that we believe is what brings you to the cross, what brought you to the cross, that you might give yourself in obedience to the will of your Father to redeem us from our sin. And so at, at minimum, we want to respond with great gratitude to stand in awe again of your love for us and your kindness. Father, I, I think it'd be remiss if I didn't recognize the fact that as we deal with this topic, there are throughout this room all sorts of feelings and emotions and thoughts. and Lord, where there are struggles, where there is conviction. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the sweet gift of repentance. Thank you that as believers in Jesus Christ, the lifestyle that you have called us to is one of self-examination, helped by your spirit, confession of sin, acknowledging it, turning from it, and experiencing the fullness of your grace not being loved less or put on probation, but rather being loved by you perfectly. Thank you that we have that in Christ. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is not, not trusting alone in Jesus Christ, who is um, struggling perhaps with guilt or frustration on these things, I, I pray, Lord, that today your, your grace would open their eyes to see the beauty of Christ, to see in his grace a salvation from sin and guilt and shame that will one day allow us to stand before you as the bride, sanctified, washed, made whole, eternally in your presence. Lord, thank you for what you have done. Help us as we study these things to continue to to run back, to rest in the the knowledge of who you are, to see your holiness through these things and to be in awe of it, to see your calling on us to to live and flee these things, and also to have great gratitude for the grace that you show to broken sinners. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.